children upstairs for our kids' crew worship time. This is for kids who are sixth grade and under. A time of worship teaching that is just for them on their level. As they make their way upstairs, I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 13 this morning. Hebrews 13 is where we will be in our study, working our way through the book of Hebrews. We've called this entire study greater than, because what we see in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is greater than everything else. And even this morning, as we draw a conclusion to the study, we're going to see that he is greater He gives us a greater vision for our lives, greater than anything else that we see in the world around us today. And so uh, we're going to jump in and and actually make it all the way through the entire chapter, Hebrews chapter 13, which is a lot of ground for us to cover. The truth is, as I was studying this week, there were really two choices that I, I, I knew that I wanted to wrap up Hebrews today. That had been the plan all along, but the more I spent time, the more I was really tempted to stretch this out into several more sermons because, as you'll see, we get into it that, that it easily could be. But instead, we're going to take the, uh, the, the zoomed-out view a, a little bit this morning. We're going to look at the bigger picture because there's a central idea that ties together all of Hebrews, really as a book, but even particularly Hebrews 13, and that is how we can live by faith in light of all that Jesus has done for us. When we understand that he's greater than everything else in this world, when we understand that he gives us this great and perfect example to follow in our lives, then he becomes for us not only an example of some things that we ought to do, a way that we ought to live, but really he becomes the very source of the faith that we are to live by. And we see that in this passage this morning. And in particular, I think if there were to be one central verse, one central idea to all of, uh, all of this, it would be the verse that tells us that Jesus suffered outside the gate. Verse 12 tells us that Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. In other words, Jesus did for us what we couldn't hope to do for ourselves, and understanding then what he has done for us informs the way that we live. And so let's dig in this morning, and let's see how this passage teaches us that Jesus is greater than, than everything else in this world. And rather than reading all of verse or chapter 13 and then going back and, and digging into it the way that we often do, I'm just going to, I'm just going to read a section at a time this morning and, and work our way through this because what we find as we, as we begin to work through the parts is, is we, we find this running thread that will, that will work its way into the text as a whole. And so we're going to jump around a little bit, okay? We're going to read the first, uh, the first seven verses or so, and then we're going to jump and read a, skip a few verses and then come back to them. And so we're going to work our way through the text that way this morning as we do this. And so uh, I, I want us to see in this passage, this is the first point on the notes that you have on the backside of your worship, God, that faith compels us to live in a way that is greater than the examples that we often see around us. And so as we are, as we are, being, as we are being compelled to live by faith, we need an example to follow, right? We need, we need some leadership in our lives. We need someone or something that would guide us. But the problem is that when we look to the examples that we see in our world, it's, it's like the blind leading the blind. Because the truth of the matter is that the people who are the people who are leading the way oftentimes, particularly when we look to the examples of 
of, of cultural figures in our world, right? What we really understand is that they don't have a clue either, right? When we look to, when we look to oftentimes political figures, when we look to celebrities, Hollywood figures, things of that nature, we find that these people have a platform because of, maybe because of uh, an artistic talent that they have. Maybe they have a platform because of, because of some sport that they play. Maybe they have a platform because of a, a political idea that they believe in and that they're, that, that they're passionate about. Maybe they have a platform for no reason at all, right? It's often that we look to people in, in our world today and they're famous just for being famous, it seems like, right? There's no real talent, no real ability, nothing really that they're producing for the greater cultural good. They're just famous because they're famous, that sort of thing. But when we look at those examples, we, we see oftentimes this, this picture of the blind leading the blind. And so it's like, I was thinking about it this week, it's like middle school, right? All right, so think back to middle school and think what life was like in middle school uh, to the best of your ability. For some, that was not so far back in the future, and for others, maybe that was so long ago that they didn't even call it middle school, right? So think back to 13, 14 years old, around that age, that time in your life. When we were all in that stage of life, the truth is that we were awkward, right? I mean, life for a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old, it is just awkward. There's no way around it. And, and we can think back and we can remember what it was like. We have a 13-year-old in my house. And so I can tell you that life with a 13-year-old or just being 13 is awkward, right? Who would want to go back to that, that stage in life? We were buying shoes for Pike the other day, right? Uh, soccer starts this week for the middle school. And so we were buying a new set of cleats. And we might as well have gone to like the water ski store and, and bought a pair of skis for his feet, right? Because it's what it feels like that you're, his, his, his body is disproportionate. You know, he's got these giant feet and, and yet he's as thin as a rail and that. But we were all that way at one point in time. We were all in middle school. We went through that phase of life and life was just awkward and everything was weird. And yet there always seems to be a few cool kids in middle school that have it all figured out, right? They're just a little bit cooler than everybody else. They've you know, there's that air about them that they know what they're doing. And, and, and so they, they branch out and do something a little bit different than everybody else. And what happens is that everybody else follows them, right? So maybe it's, maybe it's a certain thing that they do. Maybe it's a way that they dress, right? And so somebody tries it to be different. But then what you find is that you've got hundreds of people that are all trying to be different because they all ultimately went to the same store and all bought the same thing. And so everybody wants to be unique, but they're all just the same, right? It's that weird phase of life that we've all been through, many of us anyway. I suppose we've got a few maybe still going through it at this point. And if you're in middle school, can I just tell you, it gets better, all right? Life gets better. Thank goodness that it doesn't stop at 13, 14. But here's the thing is that, you know, middle school to me in my own life in any way, I think back, and, and, and that sort of personified this idea of the blind leading the blind, that there's a few cool kids that have got it figured out, but what you grow up and what you realize is they didn't have a clue. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know what was going on better than anybody else. Maybe, if anything, they had a little more confidence, or maybe they were just better about faking it, right? Oftentimes in life, we feel a little bit like the blind leading the blind, like we're going through life. We don't know what we're doing. Thank God he didn't leave us on our own. He didn't leave us without an example to follow. He didn't leave, leave us without someone that we can look to who can point 
the way for us. And this passage, this text this morning talks about this. So as all through the book of Hebrews, as we've been understanding what it means to embrace Jesus as being greater than everything else, and then to live by the faith that we have in him so that our lives really are, are spent for his kingdom purpose, for his will. We, all of Hebrews has been pointing us to this idea that we would live by faith in the one that's greater than anything else in this world. We can trust him. We can follow him. We can look to him when we need an example to follow. And we'll see that in the, in the text this morning. So faith compels us to live in a way that is greater than the examples that we often see around us. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, Let brotherly love continue. Now let's pause there because what we're going to see as we begin to work through this text is the way that this, transfer, this transformation takes place in us by faith, that, that it should show up in the way that we live. So as we walk by faith, as we live by faith, this life of faith that we have been called to live, that it should transform us, it should change us, and it should show in our lives, right? It's as if the writer of Hebrews is saying, to kind of wrap up this sermon, this letter that he's given to these believers, He's wanting to say, essentially, listen, if, every, if you believe everything that I've said, if you embrace everything that I've said, then your faith should show up in the way that you live. And here are some examples of ways that, that that's true. And the first example he gives us is brotherly love. That we should demonstrate brotherly love in the way that we live. And brotherly love is, is love that's directed toward those that we're close to, right? It's love directed to those around us. I'm the middle of three brothers, and so I can tell you a lot about brotherly love, right? Because I've been on the giving and the receiving end of some good old-fashioned brotherly love in my lifetime. The hard part about brotherly love is that sometimes the people that are hardest to love are your brothers, right? Sometimes the people that are hardest to love are the people who are closest to you, and they may not be your literal brothers by blood or by relation, but Nonetheless, the, the idea of brotherly love is, is really a, a popular New Testament idea because it's the idea of loving others in the body, loving other believers, loving others that we are close to, that we share life with. So if we have faith that is real, if we have faith that is genuine, one of the ways that it will show itself is in the way that we love each other, the way that we love and care for one another in the body. So he says, let brotherly love continue. I, I think it's interesting that in, in verse 3, he gives us, I, I feel like he gives us an even uh, deeper understanding of what that brotherly love may look like, is when we care for those who are, in, who are hurting, who have real needs, right? Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are since you also are in the body. Now we know he's talking about believers here because he says, because you also are in the body. So he's talking to believers about other believers, some of whom must have at this point been arrested and in prison. And he's saying, don't forget about those who've paid the ultimate price, right? Those who've been mistreated, those who are being persecuted for their faith, they've been arrested and they've been in prison for their faith. Don't forget about them, remember them, because you also, you have been mistreated. And, and here's the key to understanding what brotherly love really ought to look like, is this phrase in verse 3, as though in prison with them. 
See, the key to brotherly love is that we are willing to walk through the seasons of life with people as they go through them. The, the real key to brotherly love is not that we would just smile and pat each other on the back and say, hey, I'm praying for you, right? So many times we say to someone, I'm praying for you, or you're going to be in my prayers, but I wonder how many times do we really pray for them? How many times are they really in our prayers? Are we really praying for one another? The key to brotherly love is that we would, that we would love one another, as it says, as though in prison with them, which means when someone is walking through a, a difficult season, that we would go through that difficult season with them. If you've ever been through a really hard season in life, you know that the thing that, the, that means the most to you in the midst of that season is not what people say, but it's, it's what they do. It's not so much words of wisdom, but it's presence that people, that they're there with you, right? That they would just, that they would be with you in the midst of that, of that season, in the midst of that hurt, in the midst of that pain and that difficulty. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying, <clears throat> excuse me, that we should love each other. We should love each other in this kind of way, right? Where we, as though we were in prison with them, as, as though we were right there with them, we, we walk through life. That's what real brotherly love is about. That we're called within the body to share life together and to walk through life together. And so genuine faith is, is embodied by brotherly love, real love, the kind of love that, that doesn't quit when things get hard. Secondly, we see that genuine faith shows up in, in hospitality. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, you know, it's popular today, it's kind of a pop culture thing to, to think that, that people around you are, are angels, they're like your angels and they're there to help you, and, and, and I don't know if... I, you know, I, I don't know how much we actually entertain angels unaware because the whole idea, right, is that, th that we're unaware. The whole idea is that, that we wouldn't know it. Now, I do believe that it's possible. I do believe that, that, that angels are real spiritual beings and that they can, they can take on a, a physical, they can manifest a physical presence. I mean, I don't, think that's, I don't think that's impossible. We see that in the Scripture. We see examples of situations like that in the Scripture I don't know how much it, it really happens, but it's not so much about us trying to pinpoint and figure out every time that we may have seen an angel or somebody's encounter or their story that, oh, I saw an angel. The point is just that we would show hospitality to everyone because the idea is that you never know who it is that you are serving. You never know who it is that you may be ministering to or blessing with your hospitality. Hospitality is a spiritual gift, no doubt. There are some people who just have the, the knack, right? They just have the God-given ability to do hospitality well. But whether or not it's a spiritual gift, I think all believers are called to show hospitality because hospitality becomes, in, in a way, it's a way that we embrace those who are outside of the body. And so one of the things that we say here at First Baptist, one of the things that we talk about in 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 group study and as we're living life together is that sometimes people need to, they need to belong before they believe, right? That we want to create space for people to come and live life with us and to share experience with us and even to study the word with us maybe before the point that they even really 
have, have truly identified as a believer, maybe before the point that they've really, truly surrendered their heart and their life to Christ, we want to create the space for people to belong and to see what this Christian brotherhood is all about, right? Hospitality is key to that. Hospitality is key for us to, to create that, that space where people can belong so that they can, they can work through the, the questions, the doubts, the, the, the things that they might be wrestling with in terms of their faith. And so we're not to neglect hospitality to strangers, it says, and particularly those that we don't know, that we would be hospitable, that we would be kind to them. So genuine faith is hospitable faith. Third, we see this. Genuine faith shows up in our marriages. Uh-oh. Hold on, right? Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, it's very telling that in all of the list of things that he's working his way through that have to do with the evidences of faith, that he uses marriage as one of these evidences of faith. He says, essentially, that our marriages, as Christians, as believers, our marriages reflect our faith. You may think, how does my marriage reflect my faith? Or how is my marriage supposed to be an example of my faith? Well, here's the truth. When we really understand the purpose in marriage, God's design in marriage, we understand that marriage ultimately points us to the gospel. Read in Genesis chapter 2, where, where in those earliest chapters, at the very foundation, at the beginning itself, we see that God says that this was the purpose, his design in creating male and female, husband and wife, Adam and Eve, is that the man would leave his mother and his father, and he would take a wife, and the two would become one flesh. Jesus expounds on that when he's teaching. We see in the Gospels, in Mark chapter 10 specifically, we see that Jesus is, is speaking about this, and he says that, he, he quotes Genesis, that a, that a man will take a wife, and the two will become one flesh, and then he adds these words. He says, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And then writing about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul takes that same teaching that same idea and he builds on it even more in Ephesians 5:32 he says I tell you this mystery refers to Christ and the church so we really when we really understand what marriage is all about we see that marriage is intended to be a, a teacher if you will a, a picture for us of Christ and the church that the relationship that exists between Christ and his bride is is most most, uh, we, we could say, visibly identified or most visibly manifested for us in our marriages. And so as Christians, as believers, our marriages ought to reflect the gospel for the world around us. Sadly, though, so often this isn't the case. One of the reasons, not, this is not the only reason, but one of the reasons why I feel like the world looks at marriage the way that it does is because as Christians, we have not upheld marriage the way that we ought to. One of the reasons why marriage is, is, is eroding before our eyes in the culture today and, and the definitions of marriage and, and all of these things that, that are happening in the world and the culture around us, we have to take ownership of this, of this sad reality is because in the church, we have not honored marriage the way that we should. Our marriages don't reflect the gospel the way that they 
that they should. And so the world looks at us and they say, yeah, I mean, there's nothing different between your marriages and our marriages, so who are you to define marriage for us? Who are you to tell us what's right and what's wrong? What you do looks just like us. Sadly, they're right. And yet, the writer of Hebrews tells us that if our faith is genuine, it's going to show itself in our marriages. That our marriages should reflect the gospel for the world around us. The way that we love each other as husband and wife should be a picture a snapshot for someone else to see of what, of what the love of Jesus that he has for us as his bride, the body of Christ, the church, is really all about. So genuine faith is seen in brotherly love. It's seen in hospitality. It's seen in marriage. Genuine faith is seen in stewardship, the way that we use the resources we've been given in this life. Let's keep going. I mean, that could be, verse 4 could have been a a whole message by itself, right? Verse 2, a whole message by itself. Verses 1 and 3, so could verse 6, verse 5 and 6 really. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The way that we steward the resources that we've been given, the way that we use the, not only the money, but the capital that God has entrusted to us, our time, our abilities, our resources, those things that the Lord has entrusted to us, is a reflection of our faith. So many people wrestle with the biblical principle of tithing. So many people wrestle with giving money the way that they should because, honestly, Their resources are tight, and they think there's just not enough at the end of the day to go around. And so if we give, we won't have enough to pay these bills. We won't have enough to do these things. And here's what what I want to say. I mean, again, I could spend a whole sermon, a whole series of sermons talking about stewardship and the way that we we do that. But because we're moving through this quickly this morning, I want to say this. Stewardship ultimately comes down to an authority issue in our lives. Ultimately. It's an issue of authority. And we're going to even talk in a minute about submission to authority. But ultimately, the way that we, the way that we tithe, the way that we practice giving, is, is an authority issue. Do we believe that God will do for us what he said he would do? God is the one who has called his people to tithe, to give. God is the one who's compelled us to live generously God is the one who has called us to to see all of the things that we have, not as ours, but as his, and to use them and direct them for his kingdom purposes the way that he wants us to. God's design for us was that that we would be generous because he's been generous to us. And the way that we... The way that we steward the resources, the way that we manage our money and the resources that God has given us, ultimately is a matter of authority. Do we trust God enough to be surrendered to his authority? Do we trust him enough to do what he's told us to do? Or do we feel the need to hold on to those things, like a a child that would say, no, mine? And so stewardship ultimately is about trusting God. It's It's about surrendering to his authority in our lives. Which is interesting because when he talks about keeping our lives free from the love of money and being content, he gives us this. God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What does God never leaving us or forsaking us have to do with giving money? 
Well, because it comes back to this idea that when we give, we can trust that God will supply our needs. When we give, we can trust that God will take care of what we need. Now, that doesn't mean that God's going to give every want. It doesn't say that God is going to supply our wants, right? But I do believe that he will supply our needs. And so stewardship is a reflection of our faith. Giving, let me just put it bluntly, giving is a reflection of your faith. But, it's, but he doesn't end there. He goes on to talk about worship. Now, this is where we're going to skip a few verses, and we'll come back to the section that we've skipped over in just a moment, and you'll see why when we do that. Skip to verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. He's talking about worship here. Continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So the sacrifice that we offer up to God is, in verse 16, that we would not neglect to do good and to share what we have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The sacrifices that God desires are for us to live generously, for us to for us not to just give lip service to him, but for it to show up in our lives. And that's what genuine worship is all about. We saw that last week in, in the passage that we studied, that we would offer ourselves as worship before God, right? That's through offering ourselves, offering our lives, that we really worship him. And so worship ultimately is not just about singing songs. In fact, people that, that understand worship as singing really have a very narrow and, and, and I feel like a, an overly simplified view of what worship is, can be about, or really what worship is about. Now, I think singing is perhaps my favorite of all expressions of worship. I love to sing. I love music. I love it when we get together and we sing corporately. But worship is not defined by, by song. Worship is so much more in Scripture. We see that worship is really when we offer ourselves to God, our sacrifices to him, verse 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The fruit is the key there, right? The sacrifice is the fruit of lips that praise his name. The fruit itself is how we live. It's our lives. Our lives are the real sacrifice. Our lives are the real, uh, the real dem demonstrative worship, right? The way that we, that we really worship God is not just to give lip service to him, but to follow him, to obey him, to be surrendered to him, to honor him in all that we do, which really leads to this last example that he's given us, and that is verse 17, that we would, that we would show the evidence of genuine faith in our submission to authority, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those willing, rather those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So what he's saying is, submit to the authorities that God has placed over you in your life. And he's talking specifically here about spiritual authorities, because he talks about them keeping watch over your souls. You would, that you would submit to the spiritual authority that God has placed in your life. 
that all of us as believers, even me as pastor, now in this church, in the context of this body, I understand that I am at the top of the food chain, so to speak, that I am, that I am at the top of the pyramid of, of God's spiritual authority in this body. And believe me, I do not take lightly the call that God has placed on me, and I do not take lightly what he says here, that someday I will stand before God and I will have to give an account for the way that I have shepherded you. Someday I will stand before God and I will be judged for the way that I use the spiritual authority that's been entrusted to me. One thing that I always try to point you to, one truth that I want to remind you of this morning even, is that the ultimate spiritual authority of this church is not a man or a woman. It's not a pastor or a staff that Jesus Christ is the head of this church. Now, as the pastor, I'm the chief shepherd. And as staff, we, we take on a spiritual authority that, that God has entrusted to us. And there are other spiritual authorities in this church with our deacons and the other leaders that God has put in positions of, of, of leadership and authority in the life of this church. But understand clearly, Jesus Christ is the head of First Baptist Church. And he ultimately is the one from whom the source of all spiritual authority, he's the one from whom we derive any other spiritual authorities that have been given. And anyone in a position of authority needs to understand that someday you will stand judgment before God because of that authority. And so he says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. In other words, cut them some slack. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Make life easier on them. One of the things that I will tell my kids often, and it seems like these words uh, come out of my mouth, especially in moments when, when Rayleigh is, is not around, and, and so I've got the four kids by myself, is I will say things, like, I find myself saying things like, you guys, come on, don't make this harder than it needs to be, right? I mean, one of the things that I say to my kids is, you know, give me some slack, basically. Help me out here. You know what, sometimes as pastor to the church, what I would want to say is cut us some slack, right? Give us the benefit of the doubt. Make things easier on us. Now, I don't want to paint this picture of how hard life is and how, you know, oh, woe is us. We have it so hard. Listen, the, the work that we do, the work that we've been called to really is truly the joy of my life. And so I often will sign my name in different ways and salutations saying that it's my joy to be your pastor. And, and I mean that with all of my heart. It really is one of the great joys of my life to pastor this church. But the truth of the matter is, sometimes I need you to cut me some slack because I'm pulled in a lot of directions and, and, and whatever needs you have and whatever things are, are pressing and burdensome to you, understand that there are hundreds of people that, that all share needs and burdens and those things, and, and I bear the weight of that. And not only me, but our, our staff, Doug and Brad, we, we bear the weight of that as well. And, and as leaders in the church, what we need you to do sometimes is just give us some grace because we're not always gonna get it right. We're not always gonna be there when you think we should. We're not always gonna come through in the way that you think we should. And what he's saying is obey your leaders, submit to them, follow them, don't make it harder than it ought to be on them, basically, right? Give them some, some slack. And, and that, in a sense, is what he's saying is one of the ways that we demonstrate faith. In other words, that we're not 
that we're not going to withhold our submission to authority unless we agree with those authorities 100% of the time. Now listen, I've heard of people in churches, and, and I've not heard of this at, at First Baptist Church, praise God. I'm not saying it hasn't happened, but I've heard of people in churches doing things like they will withhold their tithe because the pastor doesn't do what, the, what they want him to do, and the idea is well, we're just going to starve him out, Right? We're going to withhold this. We're not going to give. We're not going to serve. We're just going to wait him out. We were here before he got here. We're going to be here after he's gone. And, and just ungodly things like that that I've heard have happening in churches before. And can I tell you that that kind of behavior is exactly at the heart of what, what, is, what is being said here. Listen, you don't submit to my authority because you may like me or you may think I'm the greatest guy in the world or you always think I've got it right. Really, Submitting to the pastoral authority and the other spiritual authorities that God's placed in your life has nothing to do with the person itself. It has everything to do with the person of Jesus, right? You submit to those authorities because you understand, as it says in Romans 13, that they were put there in place by God himself. So one of the ways that we demonstrate genuine faith is in how we submit to the spiritual authorities that God has placed in our lives. And believe me, those authorities will give an account someday before God. Whatever judgment you and I may feel like we, you know, that we want to judge them, and whatever ways we may feel like they stand in, you know, responsible or accountable to us, trust me, the judgment of God will be more strict and more severe. And so, I would encourage you, give us grace, give us the benefit of the doubt, be patient with us, and understand that God will judge us someday. And so help us, help us serve, help us lead in a way that, that God has called us to, all right? And so the transformation that takes place in us by faith is evidence in our brotherly love. It's evidence in our hospitality. It's evidence in our marriages. It's evidence in our stewardship and our giving. It's evidence in our worship. It's evidence in our submission to authority, right? But then he gives us he gives us an example to follow. Not only does he call us to live with this kind of real faith, but then he points us to the example that we can follow in this passage. Let's go back to verse 7. Because he, he gives us these two examples of the life of faith that we should imitate them. The first one, the first example, is the leaders that God has placed over us, right? Verse 7, remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God. Now, sometimes when we remember our leaders, we want to think about those in the past, right? Think about the leaders that we've had. Think about our favorite leaders. And, and, and no doubt, we've all had some people in our lives who have shaped us in profound ways. No doubt, we've all had people in our lives who, who have led us and, and shepherded us in a good way. But the truth is, in the, in the text, in the original language, the word that's used here is, is a participle. And so, okay, I'm taking you back to English class for a minute. Participles are the words that end in I-N-G. And this is a present participle, the one who is leading you. Remember, the one who is leading you or the ones who are leading you is the way that this would literally be translated. Your leaders are the ones who are leading you, those who are in positions of leadership in your lives. Remember them. In fact, Three different times in this chapter, verse 7, verse 17, verse 24, he references the leaders that we have, right? Three different times in this text. The leaders are, are important. 
And so he gives us this example of leaders, a good example, right? That's the point, is that leaders, the leaders that God has placed in our lives are supposed to be a good example for us to follow. That's part of why they will stand judgment before God is, have you set a good example for others? Have you set a good example for the flock to follow? Let's keep reading, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way and imitate their faith. Consider the outcome of their way and imitate their faith. So follow the leaders around you. Follow the example of the leaders. But he gives us a second example, and, and it's not just a good example, it's the best example. The example of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Evidently, one of the teachings that they were wrestling with in this day and time was the idea that there were certain foods. And, and it, it makes sense when we consider that the book of Hebrews is written to a group of Hebrews, that there were, the, there were the, the dietary laws that Jews were bound to, that the Hebrews were bound to. And as Christians, those dietary laws no longer held authority over them because Jesus talks about the fact that he came to supersede the law. In other words, they could eat bacon, praise God, right? And yet, and yet the... The, the arguments over foods that we can eat and what's acceptable and what's acceptable, what's unacceptable, really gets to the heart of the purpose of this book. Jesus is greater than all of that. Let's follow him by faith and not look to an old set of rules to save us, right? So he says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have, been, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which... Those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. He's pointing to the Old Testament system. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, the, the body of the animals that were offered as, as offerings, as offerings for the sacrifice for the sin of the people, those, the bodies of those animals were then taken outside and burned outside of the city. Now, Oftentimes, other animals and other things that were offered as sacrifices, the priest would eat those, those different animals or the different breads and things that were a part of the... But those animals offered as sin sacrifices, as, as payment for sin, their bodies were taken and burned outside of the city. He's saying for us, listen, Jesus is the, the best example, right? Because Jesus gave himself for us. Verse 12, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, Here's the point of what he's saying. Jesus gave us the way that we should walk in it. Jesus set the, the perfect example, the best example for us. What is it that Jesus did? Jesus himself allowed himself to be sacrificed for us. His body was taken outside of the city. He was offered as a sacrifice for our sin. And so we too need to go outside of the city and bear the reproach, it says, that he endured. Now, here's the point. Jesus suffered outside of the walls of the city so that those who are outside 
could be welcomed in, right? Jesus suffered so that those who were far from God, which coincidentally was all of us at one point in time, Jesus suffered so that through him and through his sacrifice, we could be brought near by faith. And the point of what this is teaching us is that now, in the same way, we have the ministry of Jesus for others, that we would be willing to put ourselves on the line, that we would be willing to make ourselves uncomfortable in our brotherly love, in our hospitality, even in our marriages, in our stewardship, in our worship, in our submission to authority, that we would let ourselves be, be taken, as it were, outside of the walls of the city, right? That we would let ourselves be put in situations that are uncomfortable for us, that we would that we would endure the reproach, that we would bear the suffering, that we would go through the discomfort, whatever that may look like, so that those who are far from God may be brought near by the work of Jesus. Now, you and I can do nothing to save anyone, and yet you and I have the responsibility before God to set an example so that when others look at us, what they see is Jesus. You and I have been given by God, this ministry, this responsibility that the way that we live ought to point other people to Jesus. So what they see in us is an example of faith that they can follow. So look to Jesus, first of all. Look to your leaders who ought to be paving the way. Live the way that they live. Imitate their faith. Don't just do what's comfortable. Get uncomfortable in the way that you show brotherly love, hospitality, in your marriage, in your stewardship, in your worship, in your submission to authority. Allow yourself to be used by God, right? Why? Because we have no lasting city. We seek a city that's to come. In other words, because we understand that our prize is not a prize of this world. The city that is to come, he's not talking about where we're going to live someday on this earth. Of course, he's talking about the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city He's talking about our heavenly home. We understand as citizens of, of, of a kingdom that is not of this world, as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, let's be uncomfortable in this life. Let's allow ourselves to be used by God so that we may reach other people who are distant, who are far from him. Let's get outside of what's comfortable. Let's love extravagantly. Let's be hospitable. Let's Let's set the example in our marriages. Let's give generously. Let's worship freely. Let's submit to the authorities that God's placed in our life, not as though they were of men and women, but of, as, it, as though they were from God himself. And let's live in such a way that our lives would point others to Jesus. That's the point of Hebrews 13, and really, ultimately, that's the point of the book of Hebrews. Real faith, faith that trusts in something greater than this life should be seen in the way that we live. So he goes on to say in verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear, and we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. And really, that's, that, that could speak to all of us, that we would desire to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you Sooner, And he begins to wrap up with this benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Let's live, brothers and sisters, let's live, church, in such a way that, that, that we would do honorably in all things, that we would act honorably in all ways, so that we might follow the example of Jesus, right? Who, who it says here, gave himself for us to equip us with everything good that we may do his will. In other words, because Jesus is greater than everything else in this world, because he's greater than everything else in this life, when we trust him, when we follow him, we will never want for the resources, for the ability to do what God has called us to do. When God has laid a burden on our hearts, when God has called us to something, we will never want for the ability to to do that because God himself will supply what we lack. Listen, you may not have every gift, you may not have every resource, you may not have all the money, all the patience, all the love, all the time, all the faith in the world, but if you will trust him, he will make up what you lack. This past Wednesday night, Riley Prather shared with us in our midweek study, Riley is a a church planner in northeastern United States in Putnam, Connecticut, and uh, grew up in this area, someone that we have supported the ministry of his church, Green Valley Crossing, and he talked about, he was, he was saying something about the, a ministry that their church is doing, and, and, and they're looking for some, some space, and, and trying to grow the church, and that sort of thing, and he said something I'd never heard anybody say before, and, and I've just been kicking around in my mind the last few days. He talked about how, but God's going to supply, God's going to, he's going to give us what we need, because he said, when it's his deal, it's his bill, right? When it's his deal, it's his bill, Meaning that when God calls us to something, he's going to supply what we need. I've never heard anyone say it that way before, and it really works if you've got a good Oklahoma accent, right? Because his deal, his bill, it just rhymes that way. But the truth of the matter is, that's the heart of what what I've been preaching to you all along in the book of Hebrews, and certainly this morning. When God has called you to something, he's going to supply what you need to do it. You don't have to worry about figuring it all out. You don't have to try to get in front of him and have an answer for everything. You don't even have to be the one that has all the strength, all the faith, all everything that you need, right? God will supply what you need. You and I must walk by faith in obedience to him so that he can equip us to do everything good according to his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ so that our lives would point other people to Jesus, right? So that he would be greater, not just in anything in this world, but that he would be greater in us. In a moment, we're gonna have a time of response, a time of invitation. And in this time of invitation this morning, if the desire of your heart is that Jesus would be greater in you, that he would be greater than everything else in your life, so that when people look at you, what they see is Jesus at work in you, what they see is the example of Jesus lived out in your life by faith, then I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you that you would would solidify that the commitment that that you're making before God. God, I want to be used by you. I want to walk by faith and not by sight. God, I want you to use me to accomplish your will. Our altar will be open this morning, and and, and I would encourage you as the song plays, and we sing that, that song of invitation, that if if God is working in you and he's stirring your heart, that you need to live in such a way that, that Jesus would be greater in you, you would come this morning and in prayer here at our altar, that you would just surrender whatever it is to him, your relationship, your finances, your children, 
the, the situations that you find yourself in where you're tested and stressed, maybe the circumstances that, that, that keep leading you astray again and again and again because your heart ultimately is looking for satisfaction in something that, that won't supply it. And what you need to hear this morning is that God wants to be greater in you, greater than anything else in your, in your life. And if you want to surrender everything you have to him, submit all that you have to him this morning, I would encourage you to come as we sing this song. Maybe you're here this morning and you recognize that there's never been that moment when by faith you have surrendered your life to Jesus. There's never been that moment when you have submitted yourself to him. You've surrendered to his ultimate spiritual authority. And just as I talked about that Jesus is the head of this church, there's never been that time when you've made him the head of your life. You've never surrendered your life to him. Then this morning in our invitation, we invite you to come. Uh, Brad and I will be standing here at the front ready to receive you, ready to pray with you this morning as, as you surrender your life to him. Surrender your, yourself to his, his spiritual authority over you. And then allow him to work in you, to transform you, that you would live a life of faith. We've seen it again and again and again. 20 sermons now in Hebrews. We've seen that Jesus is greater. Would we be willing, would you be willing this morning to not just accept that he's greater, but to let him be greater in you? Let's pray together. Lord God, as we respond.